Mark 12, verse 38. And in his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Amen, and be God blessed to us that reading from his word. Normally we look at fairly lengthy passages, but this evening we're looking at a very small number of verses And I think you'll agree they are challenging in all sorts of ways. So let's begin by praying. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to a passage like this, we all have to recognize how far short we fall of your standards. And so we thank you that before the throne of God above, we have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for us. We come to you in his name and ask that your spirit would enlighten our minds and soften our hearts so that we may respond to your word in faith and obedience. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Many people don't believe in God. So if you're one of them, you can close your ears for the next few minutes. I was listening in my car to the PM program on Radio 4. And that's what the presenter said as he prefaced a news item about a theological dispute in the Church of England. The presenter was, in effect, apologizing for a piece about Christianity. Other subjects aren't treated in the same way. I don't hear presenters saying, if sport isn't your thing, then close your ears for the next few minutes. If you're not interested in economics, then switch off, and you can switch back on later. You see, in our society, there's a feeling that Christianity is no longer mainstream, and theological issues are certainly of little or no relevance. But the society in which Jesus lived was very different. 
It was a highly religious society. People were committed to the Jewish faith, and they were actively caught up in its rituals and practices. But the passage we're looking at this evening makes clear that not every expression of religion was good. Mark here highlights aspects of Jesus' teaching to draw a contrast between the religiosity of the scribes on the one hand and the quiet devotion of a poor widow on the other. Mark isn't attacking Judaism per se. Prior to Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, Judaism was the centuries-old God-ordained means by which men and women lived in fellowship with God. The point Mark is making is that even true religion can be abused. I'd like to look with you this evening at Jesus' warning against the scribes in verses 38 to 40 under the heading, Hypocritical Religion, and the example of the poor widow in verses 41 to 44 under the heading, Heart Religion. Let's look at what Jesus says in these verses and take on board the full force of his teaching. First of all, then, in verses 38 to 40, we have hypocritical religion. Let's read the verses again. In his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and of the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. In these verses, Jesus urges his hearers to beware of the scribes. The scribes were the experts in the law of Moses. They studied and preserved the law embodied in the Hebrew Scriptures. They lectured on it. They also helped administer it. Some of them sat as members of the religious law court, the Sanhedrin. The scribes spent their days immersed in the Old Testament Scriptures and teasing out their meaning. So if anyone knew God's will for life and living, it surely was the scribes. But that's not what Jesus says here. He doesn't commend them. Instead, he comments on the way they focus on their privileged position in Jewish society. They strut around in long robes which identify who they are and draw attention to their status. They like being greeted with due deference in the marketplace. In the synagogues, they sit in the best seats probably where everyone can see them. And even at feasts, on social occasions, they are treated with tremendous honor and respect. They sit at the top table. The scribes like to feel special. They like being given special treatment. They like being accorded status. They get a real kick out of all that. But it gets darker. Jesus says in verse 40 that they devour widows' houses. As respected members of the community, the scribes win the trust of vulnerable women, vulnerable widows, 
And instead of taking care of them, they take advantage of them. They exploit them. They get them to hand over their money. A recurring theme of the Old Testament is concern for the poor and vulnerable. But the scribes aren't bothered about social justice. All they're interested in is what they can get for themselves. Of course, they appear pious when it suits. They pray long prayers, prayers which are designed to impress. But Jesus isn't impressed. He dismisses their long prayers as made for a pretense. There's no reality behind them. To coin a phrase, they are praying to the galleries. Their religion is mere religiosity. Jesus paints a shocking picture of the scribes. The clear implication of what he says is that they're into religion for what they can get out of it. They like the trappings of religion, the social status, the sense of privilege, the reputation for godliness. They like the power and influence religion gives them, and they use it to exploit the vulnerable. They like being able to do their own thing under cover of religion. And so they end up living lives which are flagrantly inconsistent with the standards of Scripture which they profess to know and teach. God requires them to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with their God. But the scribes turn all that in its head. Their religion is hypocritical. They're not all they appear to be. Under a veneer of godliness, they are thoroughly worldly and ungodly. For that reason, Jesus warns people to be on their guard against them. The scribes might deceive people with their hypocritical religion, but Jesus says here that they cannot deceive God. The final words of verse 40 are solemn. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus is making the point that one day, they will face God's judgment. And their condemnation will be all the greater because they knew what they were doing. They know the Scriptures. They know God's revealed will. Lack of knowledge is not the problem. Quite the opposite. They know what they should do, but they willfully and deliberately do the opposite. They sin against light. As Jesus says elsewhere, much will be required of those to whom much is given. Privilege carries responsibility. Hypocritical religion. That was the religion of the scribes. I wonder how we can apply what Jesus says about the scribes to ourselves today. Well, the scribes were religious officials. And for that reason, the most obvious application would be to ministers and church leaders. There are, I suspect, people in leadership positions in the various branches of the professing Christian church who are into religion for what they can get out of it. They have no real piety, 
but they love the outward trappings of Christianity. Perhaps it's the stamp of respectability that Christianity still carries in some quarters. Perhaps it's the sense of mystery tied up with high church sacramentalism. Perhaps it's the privileged access to people, often when they are at their most vulnerable. Sadly, some church leaders end up exploiting the people in their care. We're all aware of the shame that has been brought on the church in recent years by the scandal of sexual abuse. Nor are evangelical leaders immune from the temptations others face. We too may set store by status. We too may be attracted by power and influence. We too may be tempted to exploit others. Think of the American tele-evangelists who fund luxurious lifestyles on the back of their ministries. Think of the cult of celebrity, which is becoming an increasingly disturbing feature of American evangelicalism, even of the more conservative stripe. The pressures may be very subtle. An older minister I know was given wise advice when he became a minister. I think it was an older minister who spoke to him and said, people will want to put you on a pedestal. And soon, you'll want to be there. People will want to put you on a pedestal, and soon, you'll want to be there. Those of us in leadership positions need to examine our own hearts. What really motivates us? Is it love for the Lord, or is it something else? Do we love working for the Lord more than we love the Lord himself? Are we into religion for what we can get out of it? There's a warning here. Let's ensure our religion is not hypocritical. But what about those of us who are not in positions of church leadership? How can we apply what Jesus says here to ourselves? Well, for a start, this passage, it's worth noting, is a warning to beware of the scribes. And we too need to beware of Christian leaders whose religion is hypocritical, leaders who are into religion for what they can get out of it. We need to avoid them. Yes, their churches may appear successful. They may have a real buzz. But ultimately, they'll do us no good. Because at the heart of these churches is a phony, hypocritical religion. And we also need to look at ourselves. What motivates our Christian commitment? Is our Christian commitment me-focused? Am I a Christian because it makes me feel good? Or because it happens to fit in with my lifestyle of choice? Or because it meets my needs? Now, don't get me wrong, it's not necessarily wrong to want to feel good. It's good in a whole variety of ways to have an active church connection. There are many benefits in Christian fellowship. But if it's these things which are the focus of our Christian life, 
there's a risk that at bottom our religion is hypocritical. Jesus tells us that the most important commandment of all is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second commandment is to love our neighbor as ourselves. In the light of these commandments, does our religion have any reality? The challenge is, where is our focus? Where is our focus? If it's on the fringe benefits of Christianity and not on the Lord, sooner or later, that will be exposed. It's a fact that a significant number of people who as students were actively involved in church and Christian unions give up on any Christian commitment within a few years. Yes, they enjoy being part of a vibrant student group. They enjoy the mutual support it gives. They enjoy a whole range of interesting Christian activities. But when they leave the student world behind and go into the world of work, they may not have a Christian peer group to identify with. And getting stuck into a church as an individual can be hard work. And so they start drifting. Families face similar pressures. They may have been in the habit of attending church regularly, but life becomes busier. Perhaps the children get involved in Sunday morning activities or the temptation to have a Sunday morning lie-in just becomes so much greater, so much harder to resist. Every stage of life presents its own challenges to consistent Christian living. I'm not saying that everyone who succumbs to such pressures must have had a hypocritical religion in the first place. Even those who have a genuine faith may backslide, And our motives, at best, are mixed. But if we find ourselves starting to drift, or if we find ourselves living in a way that is inconsistent with Christian standards, we need to ask ourselves if our faith is real. On that day, when we stand before the Lord Jesus as our judge, hypocritical religion will not pass muster. He will discern the secrets of our hearts, and his judgment is unerring. Only those who trust in him alone for salvation will be acquitted. Our religion won't save us. Our Christian activity won't save us. Our church connection won't save us. Elsewhere, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus makes clear that some of those who fall under his judgment will be religious people who claim to be his followers, but whose religion was hypocritical. 
whatever religious credentials they had, they were not in relationship with him. And it's not enough to be religious. That's hypocritical religion as exemplified by the scribes. But the second half of our passage is all about heart religion. And it has to do not with religious leaders, but with an anonymous widow. Someone whom the scribes wouldn't have given a second thought. Let's read verses 41 to 44. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus is watching as people put their money into the temple treasury. Some rich people are putting in large sums. And they're perhaps doing so with a flourish so that people will see what they're doing. But it's a poor widow who catches Jesus' eye. She's a nobody in most people's eyes. She, she makes no display of what she's doing. And the offering she slips into the box is, well, it, it amounts almost to nothing. Just two small copper coins of negligible value. She's an unimpressive individual with an unimpressive gift. But Jesus sees things differently. He calls his disciples over and says to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Appearances are deceptive. There's more to this poor widow than meets the eye. The rich give large sums of money. They can afford to. After all, they still have plenty of money left to spend on themselves. But this widow has little to start off with. And she generously gives it all to the Lord. Her two small coins are all she has to, give, to, to live on. The measure of her giving is seen not in how much she gives, but in how much she has left. From that perspective, her gift is extravagant. She loves the Lord and his worship, and her offering reflects the devotion of an undivided heart. Mark wants us to see this, this widow as a model of radical discipleship. She's a picture of the kind of disciple Jesus is looking for, one who is prepared to lose her life for him and for the gospel. This widow's religion is real. There's nothing synthetic or hypocritical about it. It's heart religion, 
religion that has transformed her heart and so transformed her living and her giving. What makes this widow's religion real is not her extravagant giving. It's because her religion is real that she's motivated to give the Lord all that she has. It's important to see that. Jesus isn't saying here that the way to be accepted by God, the way to be truly religious, is to give God all your money. We cannot earn acceptance with God. This side of the cross and resurrection, we know that acceptance with God is entirely dependent on all that the Lord Jesus has done for sinners like us. Because he lived the life we should have lived and died the death which our sins deserved, he offers full and free forgiveness to all who will turn and trust him. We are saved only through faith in Jesus. But saving faith is never alone. We are saved to do good works. Such good works don't earn our salvation. They simply reflect our gratitude for our salvation. And they include giving the Lord a fitting proportion of our money. If then the widow's gift was a measure of the gratitude of her heart to the Lord, does this mean that an essential mark of heart religion is that one gives away all one's worldly wealth to God? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Well, there's a sense in which the Lord has a claim on all that we are and all that we have as Christians. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Some Christians have felt it right to give away all their worldly wealth and trust the Lord with the consequences. Where the Lord has led them to do that, he has honored what they have done. But I don't think that's necessarily required of all Christians. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we are encouraged to give to the Lord's work on a regular basis in accordance with our means. Under the Old Covenant, worshippers were required to contribute a tenth of their income. And many Christians have seen a tenth, a tithe, as a useful rule of thumb. We need to take our financial support of the Lord's work seriously. It may be something we need to review. Often the last part of a Christian's life to be impacted by the gospel is his wallet or her purse. But let's remember that the key to Christian giving, as indeed to Christian living in general, is a transformed heart. A heart that loves God in response to his love for us. This poor widow sets us an example worth emulating. It's an example of radical discipleship. As I was preparing this sermon, I was reminded of a testimony I heard many years ago when I was a student. And with this, I'll close. It was an Anglican vicar who was giving his testimony. I cannot remember his name. Uh, I have been trying hard to remember what it was, but uh, I, I just can't recall. 
As a young man, he worked in an office in London. And late one evening, he was on a train traveling back home, having gone to a concert after work with a friend. Two men joined the train, and after a short time, one of them had a fit. His companion assured the other passengers that uh, there was no reason to be concerned. This sort of thing regularly happened, and he knew what needed to be done. He then explained that he and his friend had both been soldiers. They had been in a combat situation, and he had been seriously wounded. His friend had risked life and limb to rescue him. But sadly, he had been injured himself. He had never fully recovered. And it was an account of his injuries that he regularly had these fits. The man went on to say that he was now his friend's full-time carer. And he finished with the words, He did so much for me. Nothing would be too much for me to do for him. He did so much for me. Nothing would be too much for me to do for him. With these moving words ringing in his ears, the man who would later become a a vicar got out his Bible and started reading. He wasn't a Christian. In fact, he didn't have a church connection But a short time before, he decided that he really needed to read the Bible for general interest. He needed to find out what the Bible said. And he was, at the time, reading the Bible as he commuted in and out of London, and he was working on one of the Gospels. So as he opened his Bible where he had left off that morning, he started reading the story of the crucifixion. As he read what Jesus had done for sinners like us, he recalled the words he just heard. He did so much for me. Nothing would be too much for me to do for him. He suddenly realized that these words were true in an even deeper sense of the Lord Jesus. And so he gave his life that evening to Christ and became a Christian. It caused all sorts of problems in his family. And of course, later he became ordained and he spent a lifetime in Christian service. He did so much for me. Nothing would be too much for me to do for him. I think that puts our Christian living and our Christian giving in its proper context. Shall we pray? Cleanse us from our sin, Lord. Put your power within, Lord. Take us as we are and make us all your own. Keep us day by day, Lord, underneath your sway. Make our hearts.
your palace and your royal throne. Lord, help us to avoid hypocritical religion. May our religion be heart religion, which is reflected in transformed lives. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.